what can't you do? For the vast majority of us, there are some things that you normally could do but can't for now because of the pandemic. These are many and various. They range from trivial to sorely trying. As one person put it, we're all in the same storm but different boats. There are some things you can't do because of a natural inability. You can't lift a car above your head. You can't hold your breath for an hour underwater. Hence the perennial popularity, especially among young children, of the question, if you could have any superpower, what would you choose? What about you? Flying is an obvious answer. Although if I'm being totally honest, I think my superpower would be every time I bought a book to instantly have the clock stop and I could just have all the time I needed to read it. But there are some things you can't do because you lack not a natural ability, but a spiritual one. Can you simply switch off a sinful desire? Can you unplug love of the world and plug in love for God? What is the cause of that inability? How can it be remedied? The passage for this sermon is Romans 8, verses 3 and 4. If you have a Bible, please turn there. In Romans chapters 5 through 8, Paul is giving an account of life in the reign of Christ, the kind of life Christians now live by the power of Christ and His Spirit in us. Within those four chapters, Romans 7 is something of a digression. It focuses on what the law can't do. The law can't bring life because it can't make us righteous. As Paul says in Romans 7 verse 10, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. Now, does that mean that the law itself is bad or sinful? Not at all. Paul says in verse 12 of chapter 7, So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. But if the law were the whole story, we would be in trouble. The law leaves us in a bad place. Paul cries out in chapter 7, verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? The law reveals our inability to keep it. The law reveals our need for deliverance. We need to be freed, not just from the consequences of sin, but from the inward power of sin. And that deliverance from the consequences and inward power of sin is what Paul proclaims in Romans chapter 8. I'll read the first four verses to give us the context, and then the sermon will focus on verses 3 and 4. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk 
not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Paul says in verse 3 that God has done what the law couldn't. The question is how? How has God done what the law could not? The passage gives two answers, and the sermon will have two points. Number one, Christ's sacrifice frees us from sin's penalty. Number two, Christ's spirit frees us from sin's power. Number one, Christ's sacrifice frees us from sin's penalty. And number two, Christ's spirit frees us from sin's power. Point one, Christ's sacrifice frees us from sin's penalty. We see this in verse three. Now, as I just mentioned, verse one declares that Christians are free from sin's penalty. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then verse 2 declares that we're free from sin's power. The law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. That is, the kind of negative feedback loop of being unable to escape from sin's consequences uh, because we don't have any power to free us, only the law to condemn us. So, in verse 3 and then verse 4, it repeats the same pattern. Verse 3, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. What the law couldn't do is it couldn't make us righteous. And because it couldn't make us righteous, it couldn't grant eternal life. That's the Paul point makes in Romans 7 and assumes in Romans 8. Now, why couldn't the law do this? It's not that there's anything wrong with the law. God's law reveals God's character. God's law is good. God's law is a trustworthy guide to right living. As Psalm 19 verse 9 says, the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So what's the problem with the law? The problem with the law is us. It's in that phrase, weakened by the flesh. The law was weakened by the flesh. That is, it was hindered. It was kept from reaching its goal of do this and live because we couldn't do it. God gave his law to the people of Israel at Mount Sinai, and from the very time he gave it, they began to prove that no human being can fully keep God's law. All of our hearts are sinful. They're corrupt. They're turned away from God by default. And so the whole history of Israel proves beyond reasonable doubt that no one can keep God's law. And if you know your own heart, if you know the inclinations of your own mind and how you work in your deepest desires, you know that you yourself can't live up to what God requires. As we saw several weeks ago in the sermon on Romans 8, verses 7 and 8, just a few verses after this, when Paul says flesh, he means sinful human nature, humanity as corrupted by Adam's fall. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned, human nature has been fatally weakened, corrupted, and turned away from God by sin. God created humanity upright, but sin has inwardly corrupted us all. And you can't use something broken to fix something that's broken. 
If you're not a Christian, we're very glad you're here. You're always welcome uh, at this gathering. You're always welcome at any gatherings we're having uh, at our church building. Uh, You're very welcome to be with us. What would you say is your biggest moral or spiritual problem? What is your biggest moral or spiritual problem? How can that problem be solved? And does your proposed solution require using what's broken to fix what's broken? The problem with the law isn't the law. It's our sin. Let's say you're putting together a piece of Ikea furniture. Inevitably, you come to a point where the reality before you, the partially assembled furniture, just doesn't seem to fit with the next piece of instructions. How are these bolts supposed to fit in those holes? How how is this shelf supposed to fit in that indent? So what do you conclude? These instructions must be wrong. The picture must be wrong. The parts they've shipped in the package must be wrong. But then perhaps a friend or roommate or your husband or wife comes along and takes a look at it and they say, well, it's just because you had it upside down, right? The problem all along was user error. The problem wasn't the instructions. And user error is why God's law never could and never will save anyone. The law couldn't bring rescue and release. It couldn't bring righteousness and eternal life. It couldn't free us from sin's penalty and power. But God could and God did. How? Verse 3 tells us, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. God sent his own son, his eternal divine son, who is equal to him in every power and perfection. This son became incarnate. Paul uses the phrase, the likeness of sinful flesh, to say two things. First, he indicates the reality of Christ's human nature, which makes him like us and one of us. But second, he also indicates that Christ himself was not subject to sin. That's why he says the likeness of sinful flesh. Christ's human nature was subject to physical weakness, to mortality, and his life was beset by all sorts of effects and consequences of other people's sin and of living in a fallen world. But Jesus himself was not sinful. Jesus himself didn't sin. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Instead of sinning, Jesus perfectly kept the law of God that we haven't and can't keep. Paul also says in verse 3 that God sent his son into the world for sin. For sin. You could also translate that phrase as a sin offering. What did the sacrificial sin offering accomplish? Paul tells us he condemned sin in the flesh. In his own body on the cross, Christ bore the penalty we all deserve for our sin. And he rose from the dead in order to make his everlasting life and victory ours. 
If you've never turned from sin and trusted in Christ, turn to Him today. Trusting in Him is the only way to escape condemnation for your own sin. And He is a full and complete deliverer and Savior from sin. Christ bore all the condemnation we deserve so that we never would if you believe in Him. Jesus bore our condemnation so that we would receive His righteousness. Paul says in verse 1 that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not a little bit, not an uncertain amount, not an amount small enough to be safe for consumption and survival. He says none, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because Jesus was condemned for us. Here's how Martin Luther celebrated this great exchange. Thus, with the sweetest names, Christ is called my law, my sin, and my death, in opposition to the law, sin, and death, even though, in fact, he is nothing but sheer liberty, righteousness, life, and eternal salvation. Therefore, he became law to the law, sin to sin, and death to death, in order that he might redeem me from the curse of the law, justify me, and make me alive. And so Christ is both. While he is the law, he is liberty. While he is sin, he is righteousness. And while he is death, he is life. For by the very fact that he permitted the law to accuse him, sin to damn him, and death to devour him, he abrogated the law, damned sin, destroyed death, and justified and saved me. Thus Christ is a poison against the law, sin, and death, and simultaneously a remedy to regain liberty, righteousness, and eternal life. Christ's sacrifice frees us from the law's penalty. If you're a Christian, God has done for you what the law couldn't do for you. God has done for you what you could never do for you. To be a Christian is to be set free. You're free from the verdict of guilty. You're free from the terror of eternal condemnation. You're free from the hopeless effort to earn God's favor. You are free from guilt, free from shame, free from the overwhelming, unpayable debt of your sin. You're free from the need to justify yourself before others because God is the one who justifies you. You are free from the futile project of trying to prove to others and prove to yourself that you are valuable because of what you achieve. You're free from fear of final judgment because... God has already passed final judgment on you and Christ. The cross is the execution of God's final judgment against sin, and Christ was condemned in your place. And so God has already pronounced the verdict of His final judgment on you, and it is righteous, vindicated, freed, justified, right in His sight, and so secure forever. You, Christian, are free from sin's penalty. This and much more is what we Christians are free from. But freedom in Christ, like all true freedom, is always also freedom for. Not just freedom from, but freedom for. And to see what we're free for, we need to see what else God has freed us from. So point two, Christ's Spirit frees us from sin's power. Christ's Spirit frees us from sin's 
power. We see this in verse 4. Because verse 4 continues the sentence, we'll read verse 3 again too. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit." What is that requirement of the law, and how is it fulfilled in us? Some take this phrase to mean the law's judicial requirement. That is, that sinners deserve death. On that view, this phrase restates verse 3, saying that the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us in that Christ died for us. But I think Paul has something else in mind in verse 4. One piece of evidence we saw for that is how Romans 8.1 talks about the consequences of sin in judicial terms, and then verse 2 talks about being free from sin's power. And so again, then in verse 3, it's the judicial consequences of sin. And then verse 4 at the end, Paul specifies what it is about us that causes the requirement of the law to be fulfilled in us. He says that decisive difference is that we walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. In other words, it's God's own Spirit dwelling in us that enables us to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. And what does it mean that our lives fulfill the law? It means that when we love God and love our neighbor, our lives fill in the pattern that the law sketches out. It means that our lives move forward along the rails set down by the law. As Paul says later in Romans chapter 13, verses 8 and 10, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For one who loves another has fulfilled the law. And then again in Romans 13, 10, Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So, Romans 8, 4 tells us one purpose for which God saved us. He doesn't merely rescue us from guilt. He reinstates us in true obedience. He delivers us from the condemnation due to sin and from the inner corruption of sin. He frees us from sin's penalty and power. The article of our statement of faith that we just confessed a few moments ago says, to deliver them from which, that is, from sin, and to restore them through a mediator to unfeigned obedience to the holy law is one great end of the gospel. That is one great purpose of the gospel. And as Annie read to us a few minutes ago, in the new covenant promise of Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, God promises both to forgive our sins and to inwardly transform us. Both, I will forgive their iniquity and... I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. In our two verses, Paul shows us how these two promises are being fulfilled. Forgiveness through Christ's sacrifice and inner transformation by the Spirit's indwelling. Verse 4 tells us one great end of the gospel. To so transform us that we willingly, freely, delightedly obey God's law. In this life, we do not obey perfectly. 
but we do obey sincerely, truly, and gladly. If you are in Christ, your life is no longer dominated by sinful desires. You are no longer enslaved to sin, as Paul puts it in Romans 6. You've been given a new mind, a new heart, a new self, a new direction, where you love to serve God and serve others. God's Spirit living in you enables you to love what God loves and do what God commands. So, Romans 8.4, along with its echo in our statement of faith, says that our real, lived-out holiness here and now is one of the goals of the gospel. It's one of the purposes for which the Father sent His Son to die for us and His Spirit to dwell in us. And notice the Trinitarian pattern there. As John Stott says, holiness is the fruit of Trinitarian grace, of the Father sending His Son into the world and His Spirit into our hearts. Is your growth in holiness a major goal of your life? Is it an organizing purpose for your daily rhythms and routines? Is holiness something you pursue, something you strive for, something you chase after? A purpose, and especially a big one, is a magnet that pulls all sorts of resources and effort toward it. If you want to go on vacation, what will you do? Well, probably save money for plane tickets, book a place to stay, read up in guidebooks or online about the place you want to visit, sketch in an itinerary, buy sunscreen, and these days probably check the list of quarantines of places you would want to go to or be coming from. If you want to get a new job, you might pursue another degree or get some kind of certificate or credential. You'll probably talk to people who are experienced in the field, get to know some of the main employers and what they look for in a candidate, apply for jobs, prep for interviews. What about holiness? What efforts and resources does holiness draw together in your life? What should some of those efforts and resources include? One is prayer. Praying privately for your own growth and holiness, for others' growth and holiness. Praying with your family or roommates. Praying with the church. Pray that your life would increasingly fulfill the law by the power of the Spirit. Another effort and resource is studying Scripture. Meditating on Scripture, memorizing Scripture, using Scripture as a mirror in which to examine yourself, using Scripture as a searchlight to dispel darkness from far corners of your soul. Another resource, another effort is discipling relationships, where the goal is to help each other pursue holiness together. How can you together Hold up God's Word as a mirror and use it as a searchlight. How can you together pray for victory over besetting sins, for progress into the likeness of Christ? Are you making these efforts? Are you using these resources? If not, 
How do you know that your goals for your life align with God's goals for your life? The law and the gospel are distinct, but not opposed. The law's curse no longer threatens us. Instead, its demands have become our delights. Forgiveness of sins and inner transformation are distinct, not opposed. We need both, and through God's work in Christ and by His Spirit, we have both. So much of the balance of Christian doctrine and so much of the balance of a rightly lived Christian life is found in rightly relating things that are distinct and not opposed. God's sovereignty and human responsibility, caring for people's eternal needs and temporal needs, the Word and the Spirit, careful teaching and deep experience. What God has joined together, let no man separate. So too with the law and the gospel. We should neither confuse the law and the gospel with each other, nor set them against each other. So what does it mean to walk, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, and so fulfill the law? As Paul says in verse 4, it means to live a life in line with and from the resources supplied by the Spirit who now lives within you. It means doing what the Spirit wills by the power the Spirit supplies. It means that God's will is the measure and God's indwelling presence is the means of your growth into the likeness of Christ. It means that there is a radical break between the old you and the new you. And that radical break should be evident to anybody with eyes to see. Very practically, it means confessing sin and putting sin to death and striving to be conformed ever more closely to the perfectly loving, perfectly self-giving character of Christ. To be a Christian is to be free from sin's penalty and power, and it is to be free for a life of fulfilling God's law and the power of the Spirit. In Christ, you are free from sin's dominion, and you are free for living a life of fulfilling God's commands and finding your fulfillment in doing what God requires. So what can't you do? If you're a Christian, you cannot be condemned by your sin. Christ has borne that condemnation. There's none left for you. Not a single one of your sins can keep you from enjoying peace with God now and the face-to-face presence of God in eternity. And if you're a Christian, you can't live how you used to. The Spirit dwelling in you won't let you. Instead, the Spirit is a spring of life within you, welling up in your hearts, nurturing fruit that offers a foretaste of your happy eternity. As Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 22, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Let's pray together.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for condemning sin in the flesh in order to enable us to live by the Spirit and so to fulfill your righteous and holy law. Father, we pray that you would grant us to delight in this freedom we have in Christ and to use it to glorify you and serve others. We pray that you would grant us assurance of your love for us and that we would demonstrate our love for you that you've put in us by your Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.